chromosomes. Little strands of nucleic acids and proteins are the fundamental genetic instructions that tell us who we are at birth. Most people are born with 46 chromosomes, but each year in the United States, about 6,000 people are born with an extra chromosome, making them a person with Down syndrome. If you've ever encountered someone with Down syndrome, you know that they are some of the kindest, most joyful people you will ever meet. They truly have something extra. My name is Lisa Nichols, and I have spent the last 24 years as both the CEO of Technology Partners and as the mother to Allie. Allie has something extra in every sense of the word. I have been blessed to be by her side as she impacts everyone she meets. Through these two important roles as CEO and mother to Allie, I have witnessed countless life lessons that have fundamentally changed the way I look at the world. While you may not have an extra chromosome, every leader has something extra that defines who you are. Join me as I explore the something extra in leaders from all walks of life and discover how that difference in each of them has made a difference in their companies, their families, their communities, and in themselves. I am so excited and honored to have Ken Blanchard as our guest today for our 200th show. Ken is the Chief Spiritual Officer and co-founder of the Ken Blanchard Companies, best-selling author, speaker, leadership expert, and thought leader. If you like this episode today, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star rating. Well, welcome to the Something Extra podcast, everyone. I am so honored humbled, delighted, ecstatic, all the different emotions to have my guest with me today, Ken Blanchard. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be with you. What what a fun time we're going to have. We are going to have a fun time. I'm convinced of that. And I, you know, I just want to give a really special shout out, Ken. I want our listeners to always understand how these connections happen. And I want to give a shout out to our good friend, Bev Kay. Yeah. She's fabulous, isn't she? For our listeners, there's maybe one or two people, Ken, who do not know who you are. Well, we'll give them one, we'll give them a one minute reprimand then. That's right, <laughs> exactly. But you know, I'm so excited about this. I mean, your passion really is to turn every leader into a servant leader. You're characterized as one of the most influential, compassionate leadership experts in the world. You know, truly, few people have really influenced the day-to-day management of people and companies like you have, Ken. So I'm so delighted to have you with me today. But I want to start out, I kind of want to take it back. And I know you were born in New Jersey, but you grew up in New York. Tell me a little bit about growing up for you. And I specifically want to hear about your parents, because I think you had really incredible parents like I did that really instilled a lot in you. So tell me a little bit about your growing up years. Well, as I said, I was born in Orange, New Jersey. That was because my uh, dad's brother, Ken, who I was named after, was a great doctor, and my mom trusted him, and she wanted to go over there to have me. But I grew up in New Rochelle, uh, uh, New York, and uh, my mom and dad were special. My dad was amazing. He uh, grew up at West Point. His father was a doctor at Highland Falls at the gate of West Point, and he loved West Point. You know, he wanted to go there. And when he got out of high school, his father said, no, son, I think you should go away to school. And he said, well, if I can't go to West Point, I'll go to Annapolis. And he graduated from the Naval Academy in 24. But they didn't need naval officers then because 
we had ended World War One, I, I think, in 22. And so at the end of his senior cruise, they dismissed him. And January 25, he went to Harvard Business School and majored in finance and went down onto Wall Street and built his career and was about to become a vice president of National City Bank. And he came home in 1940. I was one year old and said to my mother, well, I quit today. And she said, you did what? He said, I quit. He said, you do what? She said, I rejoined the Navy. She said, you got to be crazy. He said, didn't I tell you when we got married, if the country ever got in trouble? I thought I owed it something. Hitler's crazy and the Japanese will be in this soon. And that's that great American thing. He goes from a vice president to a second Louis and they put him in Brooklyn Navy Yard. And looks like he's going to stay there even after Pearl Harbor because he's got he's 40 years old with no experience. So it wasn't my dad's style. He called a friend of his who was at the academy with him who stayed in and was a top guy in the Bureau of Personnel in Washington and said, John, what do you got for an old fart in the action? I got to get in the action. <laughs> and he said, let me check it out, Ted. And so I called back a couple of days later. He said, Ted, unfortunately, the only thing I have for you is a suicide group going into the Marshall Islands. And my dad says, you have your man. Of course, he didn't tell my mom, but they gave him 12 LCIs, landing craft infantry, and they were to protect the Marines and the frogmen, which are the SEALs today, going into Saipan, Kwajalein, Anahuitak, Tinian. 70% of his men were killed or wounded. So uh, he get, he came home, and I got a picture of me saluting him because he hadn't been home in two and a half years. You couldn't commute in those days. They didn't have Zoom back then, did they, Ken? No. <laughs> so, uh, but he had quite an influence on me. I, when the president of the seventh grade, I had an interesting upbringing. I went to a, a 90, 95% Jewish elementary school. And Jewish holidays, they put us all in one room. Uh, and I retired the tried the Goy of the Month Award. <laughs> and then I merged into junior high school with a 90, 95% black junior high school, went to the Supreme Court in 61, Tested neighborhood school, and I won all the election as a compromise candidate. And so I won the president of seventh grade, and I come home and I tell my dad, I'm president of seventh grade. He said, now that you're president, your leadership training begins. Don't ever use your position. Great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. It's a myth in the military. It's my way or the highway. He said, sure, in battle, somebody's got to call the shots. But if you act like a big deal with your men when you're not in battle, they'll shoot you before the enemy. One of your first leadership (laughs) lessons from your dad. (laughs) And my mom, she was a great extrovert. She couldn't read music, but if you could hum it, she could play anything on a piano. Wow. We used to come home on Friday and Saturday night. My sister and I, we'd go out, but bring all of our friends back 9 or 10 o'clock and give my mom a couple of bourbons and she'd play the piano while we rolled the rug bound and danced in our living room. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you inherit that from her? Can you play by ear? I took lessons when I was young and then I stopped, I, which was stupid. I really regret that. And have you ever met anybody that said later in life that they wish they had not taken piano lessons? About everybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I remember our son was about seven and I had him in piano. And he said, Mom, I don't want to be a piano man. I want to be a karate man. <laughs> and I said, well, you're going to be a karate man who knows how to play the piano. you know." And I was just adamant about it. I bribed him. I did all kinds of things. And finally, when he was about nine, I gave up. Uh, you know what? <laughs> he went back when he was about 16 and he learned how to play like Andrew Lloyd Webber, or, you know, Phantom of the Opera stuff via... <laughs> Via YouTube. So, yeah, isn't that great? I know, but that music is something that just carries with you, can carry with you. Well, I know your mom and dad, you just 
had a fabulous upbringing. And you said that, you know, your dad modeled integrity, courage, loyalty, humor, all these things for you. Yeah, and my, my mom, she said to me early on, Ken, don't you act like you're better than anybody else, but don't let anybody else act like they're better than you. God didn't make any junk. There's a pearl of goodness in every human being. Dig for it. So I've been a digger all my life. Let's get into, I know that you have a BA in political science and philosophy from Cornell. You have a master's from Colgate in sociology and counseling. You got your PhD in education administration, leadership, organizational behavior, you know. And so I know that like you had an aspiration, I believe, for education, right? In fact, you spent like, what, 10 years in education? Is that right? That's right, yeah. But I think you wanted to be the dean of students or something to that effect. That's what I wanted to be, yeah. Did that go as planned? Well, no, it's it's, uh, (laughs) it's interesting. In my doctoral program, my faculty all said to me, if I wanted to be at, at a university, you know, which I wanted to be, you should be an administrator because I couldn't write. So uh, my first job is I was assistant to the dean of the College of Business at Ohio University in Athens. When I got there, he said, Ken, I want you to teach a course. And I had never thought about teaching because if you don't publish, you perish, you know. And he said, I don't care anything about that. And Paul Hersey had just come as chairman of the management department. So he put me in his department and asked me to teach a basic management course, which wasn't any problem for me because I did my doctoral dissertation on Fred Fiedler, who was the first situational leadership theorist. So after a couple of weeks, I came home and I said, Margie, I, I love this teaching. This is really fun. This is what I should be doing. I said, what about the writing? She said, I don't know. We'll figure something out. And so uh, I heard Hersey taught a great course. So I asked him if I could sit in his course uh, the next semester. This is 1966, December. And he said, nobody audits my course. You want to take it for credit, you're welcome. <laughs> Found out later that was because he thought if you audit, you wouldn't do anything. But initially, I thought that was something. I had a PhD, and he didn't. And Margie said, is he any good? I said, he's supposed to be great. She said, well, get your ego out of the way and take his course. So I had to talk to the registrar into letting me in because I already had a doctor's degree. Percy was a fabulous teacher. And in June 67, after his course, he came into my office and said, can I been teaching leadership for 10 years. I think I'm better than anybody. He said, but writing isn't my big skill area. And they want me to do a textbook. And I've been looking for a good writer like you. Would you co-author it with me? <laughs> I said, we should be a great team. You don't like to write and I'm not any good at it. So let's do it. So <laughs> we wrote a textbook called Management of Organizational Behavior, uh, Utilizing Human Resources. I think it's in its 10th edition now. It sells more today than it did even back then. And it was really, it was, it was a lot of fun to do that. I didn't realize that's how you met Paul, but I knew that you guys had done the textbook on situational leadership. And When that book was coming out, I went to the dean and I said, I quit as administrator because I'm going to be a faculty member. I got a book coming out. He said, you can't quit. I said, why not? He said, because I was going to fire you. You're a lousy administrator, which I am. <laughs> and so when we started our company over 40 years ago, it was obvious that Margie should be president. And I'm the chief spiritual officer. I'm an energizer, a motivator, but I don't want to run anything. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the whole origin because, you know, I've talked offline about that. And I find that so interesting, the whole origin of the Ken Blanchard companies and founding that with Marjorie. And I've got most of your book. I don't have all 65 of your books, Ken, but I have a lot of them. (laughs) And uh, the heart of a leader here. 
uh, insights on the art of influence, which I love that. I remember a few years ago moderating a panel of IT executives. And one of the female IT executives said that when she became an executive, the first thing that she asked somebody is, how do I have influence? (laughs) Because, you know, if you don't have influence, uh, you're not going to get much accomplished. But I I love this book. But I want to know how you define a leader. It's, It's an influence process. Anytime you're attempting to influence the thinking, behavior, or mindset of another person, you're engaging in leadership. So we're leaders in all parts of our life. You're a leader as a spouse. You're a leader as a parent, as a friend, and all. And so uh, I think universally leadership is an important concept. And uh, you ought to study it because it's probably the the biggest thing you're going to be involved in in your life. Yeah, absolutely. You said, you know, remember the best leaders are those who understand that their power flows through them, not from them. Effective leaders really believe it's we, not me. You know, all the brains are in my office. It's uh, one plus one is greater than two together we're going to be able to solve only almost anything. When you hear the me, the I, the, you know, that may be an influencer, but not the kind of influencer that you would want to follow for sure. Really, my mom used to say, why don't you write a book by yourself? Because I've only written about two or three books, you know, by myself. One on golf, because so many people help my golf game, uh-huh. spirituality. And I think I did the heart of the leader by my myself. And, but, the rest are all co-authored because I love to learn from people. And I've had some great opportunities, you know, to write for, you know, Norman Vincent Peale, the great positive thinker, and Gary Ridge, president of WD-40. They got a 92% employee engagement score. And Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, and Colleen Barrett, who became president of Southwest Airlines when Herb stepped down. I mean, it's just been a marvelous thing, plus some a lot of colleagues that I've met over the years. So you're married to Marjorie. And, you know, I want to talk about the founding of the Ken Blanchard Companies. Because here you are, you're in academia, you're teaching, you're doing some writing. You took a sabbatical. How did all of that come about? And I love the fact that you said you're not great at the administration. So clearly she needed to be the president. We ran on, <laughs> in a sabbatical into a group called the Young Presidents Organization that you've been a member of. And uh, you have to become, in those days, president before you're 40 years old. And I think that time you had to have 50 employees, at least 5 million in sales. I got to do a session for them. They just loved it and invited me to one of their big universities. And they said, what are you going to do at the end of the year? Because I was on a one-year sabbatical leave. We're going back to the university. I said, no, you're not. So what do you mean? We're going to start your own company. How are we going to do that? We can't even balance our own checkbook. And they said, We'll help you. And five YPOers became our advisory board from around the country and helped us start our company. And it was really obvious when we started that Margie would be better as president. You know, I'm the kind of a head cheerleader. Initially, I was called chairman of the board, but I didn't like that. And I became the chief spiritual officer, you know, kind of the head cheerleader. And we we got going uh, back then with a couple of colleagues that we had at the University of Massachusetts. We well, I'm the founding associates, and uh, it's amazing. You know, we, we're now, uh, I think, 42 years old and still have, you know, a couple of hundred or more employees, and it's just great. You know, and our son, 
took over as president to, right before COVID and our daughter's head of marketing and Margie's brother, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, he's our CEO. And Scott, our son's wife, has headed up our coaching business for a long time. So it's a real family business. It's a family affair. And we'll talk about that because I know you and your son are co-authoring a book around that right now, right? And what you've learned. And that's funny, though. I love that you gave your title the chief spiritual officer. I love that. One of the things I do... uh, as chief spiritual officer, I send out a morning message to everybody every day, and I praise people. I tell them things that, that I've learned. And like I met a guy from New Zealand in an airport a while back and sent him a couple of books, and he sent me a note and said, Ken, you know what business you're in? You're in the business of the power of love rather than the love of power. So I did a morning message on that. But now my wife Margie and our daughter Debbie and Scott's wife Madeline are helping. So They each do a morning message once a week, so I'm down to two a week. So people, I think, really enjoy it to pump up, just reminding them that the most important thing is your people and your colleagues and your customers. Never be too busy for people, right, Ken? You know, I was talking to somebody earlier today, and we were just talking about the power of words. You know, and a word at the water cooler with someone could change the trajectory of their whole day. Yeah, Being present, being aware enough to make sure that the words that we are using are important. I was on a meeting with a few people the other day, and so one of the gals works closely with me, and I said, I'll see you later. Love you. And she said, how many people have worked for bosses that say, I love you? No indication. Everybody knows what a solid relationship Ken and Marty have, you know. That's so beautiful. I've always said, uh, Lisa, that love is the answer. What's the question? And servant leadership is really love in action, really. And you know what? It's a never-ending thing, right? I mean, we can always be learning how to love better. It's all about bringing out the best in other people and letting them know that you're there for them, you know? So good. Well, this is why few people have influenced (laughs) businesses and companies and people like you have, Ken. But you've authored now or co-authored, and we've talked a little bit about this, over 65 books. And I'm not going to name them all, but... You know, for people in business, or even if you're not, I know you've heard of some of these. The One Minute Manager was the iconic book in 1982, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit if we have time. Leadership and the One Minute Manager, Raving Fans, I have that one that's all about customer service. Well done. The Secret, that's one that you wrote with Mark Miller, right, at Chick-fil-A, which is an, an amazing leadership expert. Yeah, amazing guy, Mark. The Simple Truth of Service, Leading at a Higher Level. You you mentioned Truett before. You did the generosity factor with him, right? Right, yeah. One of the most generous people I've ever known. And that's the way Chick-fil-A is now. They do all kinds of things for the community all around them. Such a an amazing brand in every way. You know, doing things with excellence, but then doing it with love and servant leadership. They outsell almost all the... Uh, other fast food companies, and they're not open on Sunday. They do such a great (laughs) job. But here's what I find. So you've written over 65 books. Here's what I find so interesting about you. But I think a lot of it comes from your roots, kind of like what your dad said. (laughs) You know, don't be thinking too much about yourself. And your mom saying, you know, don't think yourself better, but don't ever let somebody say that they're better. You know, you have every right to be proud, you know, of your accomplishments. Uh, Randy, 
I think it's Randy Conley. He was your VP of Global Services. Here's how he described you. Some of the words, Captain Optimism, (laughs) Possibility Thinker, Genuine, Authentic, a Lover of People, Helper of People, Serving People. I mean, Ken, you have every right to be proud, but you're not. You're so humble. You know, talk to me a little bit about pride and ego and how sometimes that can be the detriment. That can be the derailment of a leader, don't you think? I think that's because my mom and dad, you know, would say, don't you act like a big deal. You're only as good as the people around you and and all. And so it's uh, I've just been very blessed with the kind of things I've been able to accomplish. But why would I, you know, think I was a big deal, you know, because everybody has. Uh, skills, as my mom would say, everybody's got that pearl of goodness uh, in them. So if you're a digger looking for pearls, uh, you don't have to spend all your time on your own pearls. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I love that. Well, listen, we have to take a quick break, but we will be right back with Ken Blanchard. We have so much more to talk about. So we'll be right back with the Something Extra podcast. In business, the tendency is to seek out partners who are bigger, faster, stronger. When it comes to IT, you should be looking for smarter, faster, better. That's just what you'll find with the talented technologists at Technology Partners. Our experts develop custom solutions to tackle your most complex challenges, all to simplify your processes in the smartest, most efficient way possible. The time to be swift and nimble starts now. Go to technologypartners.net slash solutions and see what's possible. So, Ken, we've already talked about the one-minute manager. And the one-minute manager, you know, is really iconic in business. You wrote that in 1982. You wrote that with your late friend, Spencer Johnson. In 2015, the the world has changed a little bit since 1982. So you did a revised version called the new one-minute manager. And you and I have talked about this. In 1982, it probably was a little bit more of a command and control, top-down leadership. The... uh new one-minute manager, which we did seven or eight years ago, we wanted to adjust it because people nowadays are talking about side-by-side leadership, not top-down. And the manager still was a little top-down because it was the manager who set the goals and the manager who decided who to praise and reprimand. And we So we made it much more side-by-side. And then we also changed the one-minute reprimand to one-minute redirects because it's much more of a collegial uh, kind of thing. And so it's been fun to see that that's been really well received. And just to reiterate, you've got three secrets in this book, the one minute goals, you know, and one of the things that you say is when you're goal setting, don't come up with 20 goals, three to five goals maximum, right? Yeah. And focus on them. And a couple of them ought to help the organization too, because what you want to do is one of the things that I got in trouble when I was a faculty member for 10 years is the first day of class, I always gave out the final examination. And the faculty would say, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm confused. I'd say, acted. I said, I thought I was supposed to teach these students. You are, but don't give them the questions in the final. And I'd say, no, no, am I going to give them the question in the final? What do you think I'm going to do all semester? I'm going to teach them the answers. So when they get to the final, they get A, life's about getting A's, not some stupid normal distribution curve. And I go to people in organizations all the time and said, how many of you go out and hire losers? We lost some of our worst people last year, we need to hire some new losers to fill the low slots. No, you either hire winners who steal from other companies or people with potential. So why do you have a normal distribution curve? There's nothing worse than that. Why wouldn't you want your people to win? And Gary Ridge at WD-40 adopted that whole philosophy. And we wrote a book called 
help people win at work. And here's the subtitle, a business philosophy called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. That is good. Well, then your second secret there is one-minute praisings. And you're, how many times does this happen? We we are talking to people when they're doing something wrong, when we catch them doing something wrong. And you're like, catch them doing something right and try to, to give them that crystal clear feedback close to them doing something right. So I think that that's really good. And then your third secret, you know, which we just talked about was one minute redirects, but really good for the one minute manager, you, your icon. Well, it's a, it was really, you know, uh, cause it doesn't take a long time to give somebody a praising. You say, you know, Hey, Lisa, I just was watching what you were doing on this show. And I just want to tell you, you really know how to bring the best out in people. And it's just fun to listen to your show, you know, and thanks a lot. Well, how that didn't even take probably 30 seconds, you know. Exactly. Why wouldn't we go that extra mile and do that for people? So you wrote a book, Refire, Don't Retire. And, you know, you said that you've met so many people and this doesn't mean that it's necessarily someone in their older years. You've met 30 and 40 year olds that say, hey, the best is behind me. And your whole idea is no, go with gusto. The best is before you. And how do you and Marjorie live your life with gusto? I mean, first, let me tell you how that book came about. Marjorie and I were invited by Zig Ziglar to his 80th birthday party. He said it was the 59th anniversary of his 21st birthday. I was 65 then. I called Zig in the phone. I said, Zig, it's exciting about your party. Are you going to retire? He said, there's no mention of it in the Bible, except for Jesus, Mary, and David. Nobody under 80 made an impact. I'm refiring, not retiring. And I just love that. And so we actually had dedicated the book to him. To Zig. I didn't know that. For firing, it's just all about, you know, what are you doing to keep yourself active intellectually? What are you reading? What are you doing with your mind? What are you doing physically to keep your body in shape? What are you doing spiritually? We're not talking about religion, but to get out of your own way. And what about emotionally in terms of your relationships? And you ought to be constantly looking at those. It's not about age. It's about, you know, staying alive, staying vibrant. And boy, people ask me, I'm, you know, 83. How come you're still working? I said, I'm not working. I'm playing. Listen, I see so many, I'm around so many leaders and so many times, Ken, people are hard charging. It's like accomplish, accomplish more, more, got to do more. And sometimes it's just, I've got another friend that says, you know, finding joy in the moment. Lisa, we have two selves. We have a task-oriented self, so used to getting jobs and a thoughtful, reflective. Which one goes, wakes up first? Well, it's the task-oriented. The alarm goes off. And John Ortberg, who's an old minister buddy of mine, he said, why don't we call it the opportunity clock? Or it's going to be a great day. But alarm, you know, you jump out, you know, you're eating while you're trying to wash and you jump in your car and all racing all around. You get home at night. You don't have energy to even say goodnight to somebody who might be lying next to you. The next day, boom, you're out. And so you're caught in this rat race, you know, that even if you win, you're still a rat. So one of the things that I really try to work on, I think we all should, is in the beginning, enter your day slowly, prayer and study of scripture or reading inspirational stuff or just uh, meditating or doing something that just gets you focused and, and think about your day and how you want to be in this day. And, and then I like to write at the end of the day, praisings, what did I do today I'm proud of and redirects, what would I like to have redone? <laughs> and so 
who is it that said a life unexamined is not worth living? I think it was Plato or one of those. Plato or Socrates, yeah. Those, those young guys. Yeah, I love that. The problem with being in a rat race is even if you win the race, you're still a rat. I mean, so you just want to want to be more intentional about your life, not not have your life drag you along. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you may, you may have read some of Jordan Rayner's material and he's been on the podcast and, you know, I mean, then you'll hear other people say this too, but you really are the one that can have control. You've got to, you got to have control of your time and your energy and all that. Sometimes it means saying no to things, but if you don't take control, can somebody will. Somebody else will take control for you, right? So, so important. You know, listeners, go get the books. I promise you, pick one of the 65, three of the 65, whatever. I promise you, any one that you pick, uh, you're going to get so much. Pick up the latest, The Simple Secrets of Leadership. Yes. Two ways to become a servant leader and build trust. It's really fun. It kind of summarizes all the stuff we've been doing over the years. Yeah, and you just published that one, right, Ken? Yeah, not long. You just published that one in 2022. And I know you got a new one coming up, but I first want to ask you, Ken, what do you believe is the something extra that every leader needs? The biggest something extra is to get out of your own way and to realize that you're not the center of the universe, that you're only as good as the people you gather around uh, you. And uh, if you make and help your people look good, They'll help you look good. And it's a win, win, win. You know, it's a win for you. It's a win for them. It's a win for your organization. It's about we, as we said, not me. I love that. Well, tell me real quick and tell our listeners, you've got a new book that you're writing with your with your son, because I know a lot of your family is in the business, which is awesome. Our son, Scott, is taken over as president of our company. He took her over right before COVID. It's amazing what he's done. You know, in 2000, we maybe did 15 or 20 online programs. Uh, last month, we did over 800. And he brought in high-tech people and turned our, all of our technology so that we could do it online. You know, and face-to-face is slowly coming back, but it's not going to substitute for online because people can get training. You know, we, we have these learning journeys now that we can give people. And so... Um, uh, and our daughter's the head of marketing, and our, uh, Margie's brother, Tom, was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, 18 years younger than she. He's our CEO. Scott and I are working on a book together. The working title is kind of a leadership legacy. It's a family affair, you know, about what he's learned from me and what I've learned from him, you know. He starts a lot of his speeches. He said, I bet you wonder, wonder what it was like to be the one-minute son. And he said... <laughs> When I was young, when I would get in trouble, which he did a lot, he said, I wish I was sent to my room or even when I was young, spanked. But no, I had to go down to the dinner table and talk to my mother and my father and my sister about how my behavior was inconsistent with family values, of course, which we determined on an offsite retreat. <laughs> you know, gets everybody laughing. I love that. I mean, you know, you talk about the offsite retreat, but listen, just like in our businesses, if we're not intentional, yeah. our families, it starts there. Yeah, I know. So Scott and Debbie have felt where they were guinea pigs, but they use it back at us. I remember we told Scott he had we had a big truck because he's a great water skier. We said, Don't park it in the driveway, park it out in the street because we can't get in and out. One day we came home and the truck's right in the middle of the driveway. We couldn't get in the garage or anything. 
and he was off with a friend. And when he came back, man, I went down to greet him and told him what he did and how I felt about it. And then I stormed back in the house. He jumped out of the car and chased me. And he said, Dad, you forgot the last part of the reprimand. I'm a good kid. This is so unlike me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You talk about getting the opportunity to practice what you preach, right, Ken? <laughs> hey, listen, I cannot tell you how just honored I am that you spent time with me today. You know, I know that I'm better having spent some time with you. So thank you so much for being on the Something Extra podcast. Well, Something Extra is special, and that's you. And keep up the good work and, and say hello to your husband. And I'll do it. Great having, having a team because... Uh, you know, I'm I married way above myself. And I'm sure I'm sure that he did. <laughs> oh well, thank you for that. Enjoy the rest of your day, Ken. Thank you for listening to today's show. Something Extra with Lisa Nichols is a Technology Partners production. Copyright Technology Partners Inc. 2019. For show notes or to reach Lisa, visit tpi.co/podcast. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen.